0: In addition, we thought that cash flow and dividend valuations implied the potential for a 25% revaluation of the XLP versus the S&P. We went to an exotic option dealer and asked them to price an outperformance option that would be based on the performance of the XLP versus the S&P. What is the single measure that the dealer is going to use to price the odds that the XLP will outperform the S&P? The beta. Right. So with the beta equal to only 0.5, the model price for an outperformance option was very cheap. Translated into English, those inputs are saying that the XLP and S&P are likely to move in the same direction. However, the XLP will move only half as much as the S&P. But if we had a down market, then the lower beta would imply a higher probability of outperforming. Namely, it would imply that the XLP would go down less than the S&P. That's a great point, and it is the reason why to get the option cheaply, we had to strike the option at the current spot price. So there was a dual condition for the option to pay off. The XLP had to outperform the S&P, and the S&P had to be unchanged to higher. This was essentially a conditional long beta position. It was conditional on the XLP outperforming the S&P, and it was long beta because it could only pay off in an up market. What made you think the timing for the trade was right? We didn't have any conviction that the market was going higher. We almost always want to have some long beta exposure, however, and by making the option conditional on the XLP outperforming the S&P, we were able to get beta exposure to the market extremely cheaply. When you own options, you're always fighting against the time decay. Figuring out how to make the option premium cheaper is one way of mitigating that decay. So the basic premise is that beta is measured based on daily relative price changes, which can be a very poor indicator of long-term relative price changes. Right, a fact that is obvious if you look at a long-term chart comparison of the XLP versus the S&P. Volatility is a terrible proxy for measuring potential price change over longer intervals of time. For example, if an asset price changes by a constant percentage each day, its validity will be zero. One of our strategies is called cheap sigma and is predicated on the idea that markets sometimes trend and that volatility will dramatically understate the potential price move of markets that trend. For example, in 2007, Charlie noticed that the Canadian dollar was trending very smoothly as it broke the dollar mark for the first time in decades. Spot went from about 1.10 Canadian dollars per U.S. dollar to about 0.92, a very large price move. The market volatility, however, was very low. Based on the volatility, a nonsensically improbable event had just occurred. That's past tense. How does that relate to a trade you did? If the three-month implied volatility says that the price move that has just occurred was a -a three-and-a-half standard deviation event, we are going to like the odds of buying deep out-of-the-money options for a price move back in the opposite direction. So the basic concept is that option prices will tend to be priced too low in smoothly trending markets. Yes, and this is another type of option mispricing. The broader principle is that the explicit and implicit assumptions that go into option pricing models often diverge from the underlying reality. Looking for those divergences can be a very profitable exercise because you can wait and do nothing until you see a probability that is wildly mispriced. Option math works a lot better over short intervals. Once you extend the time horizon, all sorts of exogenous variables are introduced that can throw a wrench into the option pricing model. Another example of a distortion that is introduced when the time interval is extended relates to the fact that the option pricing models assume that volatility increases with the square root of time. This assumption may provide reasonable approximations for shorter time intervals, say one year or under, but if you have a very low standard deviation and you extend it for a very long time, it doesn't scale properly. For example, if a one-year standard deviation is 5%, assuming that the nine-year standard deviation will only be 15% is probably an underestimate. I guess the reason is that the longer the time period, the greater the potential for a trend, and hence the greater the chance that a longer-term price move will exceed the standard deviation implied probability, which increases only by the square root of time. Yes. Wouldn't that in turn imply that any long-term option is likely to be priced too low? We love long-term options. All the trades we have discussed seem to share two common denominators, a mispricing that arises because standard market pricing assumptions are inappropriate for a given situation and an asymmetric return-slash-risk profile, that is, open-ended return and curtailed risk. Are there any other common denominators in your trades? For any trade idea we come up with, we always go into hoping that our work will lead us to table-pounding confidence about a directional view. When we find it, nothing is better. Unfortunately, those situations happen only very rarely. Almost invariably, at some point along the way, we end up disproving one of the predicates to our hypothesis or decide that the risk we are evaluating really is inscrutable or that we overlook some important factor and the situation was never interesting to begin with. The reality is that we have a business model in which we dig 50 dry wells for every idea we explore that leads to a trade in which we find conviction. To varying degrees, All of the trades we've discussed so far have reflected situations where we did not have a high level of conviction ourselves about the outcome we were seeking to make money on. Instead, we had conviction that the odds were substantially mispriced, providing us positive expected value, even though we might not have had a strong view about the direction of the underlying market. Whereas the classic value investor achieves capital preservation by taking risks only when he is confident that he won't lose a meaningful amount of money, we think about risk more probabilistically. We are just as fanatical about capital preservation, but instead of achieving a margin of safety by knowing that a company has assets or cash flow that are not valued properly by the market, we achieve our margin of safety by having a high expected value. We are comfortable losing 100% of our premium four times in a row as long as we believe that a 25-times payout is likely to occur if we make the same bet ten times consecutively. High conviction on an event path priced like a low-probability event is our holy grail. The subprime credit default swap, CDS, trade was the poster child for a high-conviction trade priced as an improbable event. We got to the trade late, which is typical for us because we like situations where there is a compelling reason why a trade should be working, and the only counter-argument is that everyone says it should work, but it hasn't. Over the course of a couple of months, we went from having a probabilistic view that the markets were too confident that home price appreciation would continue indefinitely to having a very high level of conviction that a liquidity bubble existed that would inevitably provide the catalyst for its own demise. Some background explanation is required to understand the following portion of this interview, which deals with MIES trade and shorting mortgage-backed securitizations. A subprime mortgage bond is a type of asset-backed security, ABS, that combines multiple individual subprime mortgages into a security that pays investors' interest income based on the proceeds from mortgage payments. These bonds typically employ a structure in which multiple tranches, or classes, are created from the same pool of mortgages. The highest-rated class, AAA, gets paid off in full, then the next highest-rated class, AA, and so on. The higher the class, the lower the risk, and hence the lower the interest rate it receives. The equity tranche, which is not rated, absorbs the first few percentage points of losses, typically 3 to 5%, and is wiped out if this loss level is reached. Next, the lowest-rated debt tranche, often called the mezzanine tranche, absorbs additional losses, a greater credit risk for which investors are paid a higher rate of interest. For example, if the equity tranche was 3% of the issue and the mezzanine tranche 4%, the mezzanine tranche would begin to be impaired if losses due to defaulted repayments exceeded 3%, and investors would lose all their money if losses reached 7%. Each higher tranche would be protected in full until losses surpassed the upper threshold of the next lower tranche. During the housing bubble of the mid-2000s, the risks associated with low-rated BBB tranches of subprime bonds, which were high to start, increased dramatically. There was a significant deterioration in the quality of loans, as loan originators were able to pass on the risk by selling their mortgages for use in bond securitizations. Effectively, mortgage originators were freed from any concern whether the mortgages they issued would actually be repaid. Instead, they were incentivized to issue as many mortgages as possible, which is exactly what they did. The lower they set the bar for borrowers, the more mortgages they could create. Ultimately, in fact, there was no bar at all, as subprime mortgages were being issued with the following characteristics. No down payment. No income, job, or asset verification. Adjustable rate mortgage, ARM, structures in which low teaser rates adjusted to much higher levels after a year or two. There was no historical precedent for such low-quality mortgages. It is easy to see how the BBB tranche of a bond formed from these low-quality mortgages would be extremely vulnerable to a complete loss. The story, however, does not end there. The BBB tranches were difficult to sell. Wall Street alchemists came up with a solution that magically transformed the BBB tranches into AAA. They created a new securitization called a Collateralized Debt Application, CDO that consisted entirely of the BBB tranches of many mortgage bonds. CDOs also employed a tranche structure. Typically, 25% to 80% of a CDO was rated AAA, even though it consisted of 100% BBB tranches. Although the CDO tranche structure was similar to that employed by subprime mortgage bonds consisting of individual mortgages, there was an important difference. In a pool of mortgages, there was at least some reason to assume there would be limited correlation between individual mortgages. Different individuals would not necessarily come under financial stress at the same time, and different geographic areas could witness divergent economic conditions. In contrast, all the individual elements of the CDOs were clones. They all represented the lowest tier of a pool of subprime mortgages. If economic conditions were sufficiently unfavorable for the BBB tranche of one mortgage bond pool to be wiped out, the odds were very high that BBB tranches and other pools would also be wiped out, or at least severely impaired. The AAA tranche needed approximately a 20-25% to 25% loss to begin being impaired, which sounds like a safe number, until one considers that all the holdings are highly correlated. The BBB tranches were like a group of people in close quarters contaminated by a highly contagious flu. If one person is infected, the odds that many would be infected would increase dramatically. In this context, the 20% cushion of the AAA class sounds more like a tissue paper layer. How could bonds consisting of only BBB tranches be rated AAA? There are three interconnected explanations. 1. Pricing models used historical data on mortgage defaults. Historical mortgages in which the lender actually cared whether repayments were made and required down payments and verification bore no resemblance to the more recently minted no-down-payment, no-verification loans. Therefore, historical mortgage default data would grossly understate the risk of more recent mortgages defaulting. 2. The correlation assumptions were unrealistically low. They failed to adequately account for the sharply increased probability of BBB tranches failing if other BBB tranches failed. 3. The credit rating agencies had a clear conflict of interest. They were paid by the CDO manufacturers. If they were too harsh, read realistic, in their ratings, they would lose the business. They were effectively incentivized to be as lax as possible in their ratings. Is this to say the credit rating agencies deliberately mismarked bonds? No, the mismarkings might have been subconscious. Although the AAA ratings for tranches of individual mortgages could be defended to some extent, it is difficult to make the same claim for the AAA ratings of CDO tranches consisting of only the BBB tranches of mortgage bonds. In regards to the CDO ratings, either the credit rating agencies were conflicted or incompetent. Cornwall Capital's primary strategy for shorting the housing bubble was buying credit default swaps, CDS, on the AA tranches of CDOs. The buyer of CDS makes ongoing premium payments, equivalent to the bond interest rate payments, to the seller for protection against the risk of default and the underlying security. How did you get involved in trading the subprime mortgage market? I first became aware of the opportunity in October 2006 when a friend sent us a write-up of a presentation made by Paul Singer of Elliott Associates. Singer walked through the sleight of hand that banks used to amalgamate the riskiest tranches of subprime mortgage-backed securitizations, MBS, the BBB tranches that investors were starting to shy away from, into a new collateralized debt obligation, CDO, the majority of which was rated AA or higher. Singer demonstrated that housing prices didn't have to fall for the AA tranches of these CDOs to fail. They simply had to stop rising. The assertion that institutional investors were willing to accept the paltry returns associated with AA or higher-rated securities for that kind of risk didn't even seem plausible. If it hadn't been someone with Singer's reputation making these assertions, I would never have believed him. It turned out that Ben had come across a variation on the same idea a couple of weeks earlier when he received a presentation from Deutsche Bank that pitched buying protection on the mezzanine tranches of MBS. These were largely the BBB tranches of the mortgage securitization pools that were going into the CDOs, Paul Singer had talked about. So he and Charlie had already started to do some work at the MBS level when we became aware of the CDO angle. In the past, one important argument that was given to support the value of CDOs was that they provided portfolio diversification. That is, the collateral that went into CDOs was sourced from different asset classes. One could argue that there was a diversification benefit to having credit card receivables, aircraft leases, and various forms of real estate debt in a single structure. By late 2006, however, CDOs were composed almost entirely of the lowest-rated tranches of subprime mortgage securitizations. This homogeneous composition of the CDOs meant that the argument justifying a lower correlation assumption went out the window. The upshot was that the CDOs provided us with the opportunity to buy protection, equivalent to going short, on the worst quality bonds at premium levels that were in line with high-grade corporate bonds. What did you do next? Since we did not have the domain expertise necessary to do bottoms-up fundamental analysis in the MBS space, we hired a highly regarded research analysis who had recently left BlackRock to create his own hedge fund. He was able to evaluate the quality of the collateral underlying all the MBS issuances we were interested in analyzing based on such metrics as loan-to values, FICO scores, and seasoning of non-performing loans. He then came up with a list of the worst ABS issuances, based on his fundamental analysis. We then went out and looked for CDOs that had the most overlap with his list. We were pleasantly surprised to find CDOs that had a large overlap. It wasn't until much later that we realized that the security selection acumen we thought we demonstrated in picking some of the worst-performing CDOs was in fact a reflection of much deeper work that had been done by other investors, such as Michael Burry of Scion Capital, who knew the market much better than we did. It turned out that the reason we were able to find CDOs whose collateral happened to be the absolute worst-performing subprime MBS was because Burry had gone to dealers months earlier and convinced them to create synthetic securitizations for the specific names he wanted to buy protection on, i.e. short. By arriving relatively late at the scene towards the end of 2006, we unwittingly put ourselves in a position to reap even greater rewards from the dealer's avarice. In selling CDS to guys like Burry, they were synthetically replicating the bonds he wanted to short. It didn't take long for credit derivative dealers to have the thought that if synthetic MBS made sense, then so did synthetic CDOs. In the same way they had sold a handful of value investors like Burry synthetic protection on their hand-picked selection of junk-rated mortgage bonds, they repackaged those same securities and sold them to us in the form of a synthetic CDO. As far as I know, we were among the first investors to go short CDOs. Due to the zero correlation assumption implicit in the CDO construction, we were able to buy protection on the AA tranche, which consisted entirely of the worst quality subprime MBS for only LIBOR plus 50 basis points. It was, without a doubt, complete and utter insanity. When did you put on your short positions, i.e. buying CDS protection on CDO tranches? We started in October 2006, and the last of our positions was put on in May 2007. The market collapse began on February 1, 2007. Most people think the financial crisis started when Bear Stearns failed, but in our view, it started more than a year earlier, on February 1, 2007, when the ABX started tanking. The ABX is an index referencing 20 subprime mortgage bonds with a separate index listed for each of five tranches, ranging from AAA to BBB negative. Since the bonds in the CDOs we had shorted were of even poorer quality than the bonds referenced by the ABX index, the sell-off in the ABX implied sharply lower values for our CDOs. Did you get fully positioned? No, we would have kept shorting. Why didn't you put on your entire intended position at one time? We were developing our conviction on the trade, and our conviction levels spiked up when the ABX tanked and CDO prices didn't move. How come the CDO prices didn't decline if an index based on bonds similar to those in the CDOs was falling sharply? The dealers had bought massive amounts of MBS to hold an inventory in anticipation of turning them into CDOs, So they were stuck with a huge amount of inventory of the crappiest MBS at the time when the ABX index based on those securities was falling sharply. They went into overdrive to turn as much of the inventory as possible into CDOs. If the proper mark-to-market prices were allowed on the existing CDOs, it would have killed the CDO market and the dealers would have been stuck with huge inventories of MBS before they could turn them into CDOs. So the dealers were deliberately mispricing the CDOs. Oh, yes. You have to remember that the buyers of the CDOs were not the most sophisticated investors. People are hesitant to use the F-word, fraud. But extreme naivete would be the only other explanation, if you could believe that's plausible. We saw a research report by Lehman on a CDO issued at a yield of 70 basis points. We called the secondary desk at Lehman and asked if we could buy protection on that CDO at 70 basis points. They laughed at us. We asked whether we could buy protection at 300 basis points. They said they couldn't offer that to us either. So we asked, how could you issue a CDO at 70 basis points that you are unwilling to assume the risk on at 300? They said they would have to get back to us. Of course, they never did. In the meantime, our counterparty, Bear Stearns, is marking our CDO positions at cost. The ABX fell 30%, and our CDOs were still being marked at cost. Were you arguing with them about the marks? Not so much. We were more concerned about the integrity of the financial system. We bought a ton of puts and CDS on bare sterns because we thought they would go bankrupt. Was there collusion among the dealers to keep CDO prices unchanged, even in the face of collapsing prices of the MBS that made up the CDOs? It's hard to see how there wasn't. The real malfeasance occurred in February when the ABX fell off a cliff, but the CDO machine kept grinding away. We went to the SEC to try to make them aware that there was a profound systemic failure occurring in the integrity of the capital markets. What was the specific advice you gave them? We told them they needed to look at the CDOs and the assumptions the rating agencies were using to rate the CDOs because transactions were occurring at prices that were completely out of line with the value of the securities being sold. Ultimately, it was all about the rating agencies. The rating agencies rated thousands of securities with the same grade as U.S. Treasuries when they weren't worth more than the paper that were printed on the day they rolled off the press. And yet, despite this horrific record, the market still jumps when the rating agencies opine about the creditworthiness of a sovereign bond. I can't believe they have any credibility left at all. It is difficult to come up with a more extreme case of failure to do a purported job. Until recently, the rating agencies have shielded themselves from any responsibility, not on the substance of their argument, but rather by deflecting any claims under the shield of free speech and the First Amendment. I'm afraid I know the answer, but what happened after the SEC meeting? They seemed thoughtful and interested in what we had to say, but it is not clear to us if they ever followed up. What caused the dealers to finally mark down the CDOs? It was precipitated by the launch of the TABX, which was an index that created synthetic CDO tranches based on the mezzanine tranches of the ABX index. When the TABX was created in early 2007, mezzanine tranches of the ABX index were already trading at prices that reflected substantial impairment. By implication, the lower tranches of a CDO constructed from these bonds would be worthless. Thus, the TABX provided the first observable data indicating that the mezzanine tranches up to the A tranches and perhaps even the AA tranches of an index replicating CDOs had already lost total value. Yet the banks, who were desperately trying to get their MBS inventory off their books, were still issuing similar CDOs at par. The TABX made it impossible for the banks to continue this charade. I don't recall what precipitated the tsunami, but at the beginning of August there was a wave of risk reduction, and everyone wanted to own the CDS protection that we held. When we liquidated in August 2007, we had positions that were marked at $50,000 on Friday's close and that we sold for $4.5 on Monday. What other types of trades haven't we discussed? We love trades that appear to be approaching limits, trades that are so close to their absolute limit that they have tremendous asymmetry. Some examples are CDS protection on European banks in 2007 for three basis points and CDS on the ABX index for nine basis points. The CDO trade also had the characteristic of being near a loss limit, but was special because of our high conviction for a large profit potential. Any others? We also look for trades where the market price level itself implies asymmetry. A good example is the Korean stock market in 2005, a situation in which we did a ton of work and ended up having conviction that the entire market was mispriced. Sometime in 2003 or 2004, it came to our attention that listed companies in South Korea looked very underpriced based on the fundamentals. Whereas all the other Asian markets that had tanked in 1997 during the currency crisis had subsequently recovered, South Korea continued to languish. It was not clear why this should be the case, especially since it appeared that South Korea had done a better job than any of its neighbors in adopting all the fiscal and market reforms imposed after the crisis. Specifically, South Korea had complied with all the terms of the emergency IMF loan, including austerity measures, and had overhauled security laws and regulation to a level that was on par with the U.S. South Korea already had a deep cultural respect for the rule of law, with lots of precedent for enforcing private property rights. Despite all of these positive changes, Korean equities traded at an increasing discount to the rest of Asia, so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether there was a good explanation for this apparent anomaly. Our model is to always find experts in the domain, river guides, so to speak, We developed a close relationship with a scion of the family controlling one of Korea's largest consumer electronics companies. He is an American, but was nevertheless very much an insider who gave us great access. We got our fingernails dirty. I probably traveled to Korea ten times in the space of eighteen months. We met lots of people on the buy side, the sell side, and in industry. We hired an undergrad from Berkeley who had recently immigrated from Korea. He did a lot of Korean to English translations of financial statements. After all this research, we became convinced that the logic for why Korea was cheap was circular. Korea was cheap because it had consistently been cheap. For several years, Korean companies that generated steady and impressive cash flows kept getting cheaper. Investors who had bought Korea earlier as a value trade had gotten burned, even though it seemed like their thesis was sound. By the time we arrived at the scene, there were lots of companies trading at substantial negative enterprise values. A negative enterprise value implies that the market is assigning a negative value to the company, excluding its cash assets and debts. There were companies with market caps of 300 million, no debt, and 550 million cash on the balance sheet, which was expected to increase to 650 million in the following year. In this case, there was tremendous asymmetry simply because these companies had nowhere to go but up. What got the market to realize value eventually? The passage of time. The inexorable accumulation of profits can only be ignored for so long until it acts as a catalyst for higher prices. You talked earlier about how most of your trade ideas don't work out once you do the deep research. Can you give me an example of how research disproved what you thought was a great idea at the outset? A perfect recent example was related to our hypothesis that the nonlinear impact of increasing coal imports by China could create a trading opportunity. China is by far the world's largest consumer and producer of thermal coal, accounting for about 50% of global activity. The market has grown at roughly 10% per year for decades now, which is in line with long-term GDP growth. Unlike most other commodities, which it must import, China has abundant physical reserves of coal. Demand growth has been consistently supplied by increased domestic production, with small residual surplus that was exported. So, despite being the world's largest market by far, at roughly 3 billion tons per year, China's coal market operated essentially as a closed system. We noticed, however, that there was a strong trend in the export-import balance. China had gone from being a net exporter to a net importer, and the pace of this trend shift was accelerating. It had taken nearly a decade for net exports to drop from roughly 100 million tons to zero at the end of 2008. Yet it took only a year to cover the same ground in the other direction. By 2010, net imports were 150 million tons. Evidence that China was having major difficulties in expanding coal production at anywhere near the rate of its annual consumption increase reinforced the trend we were seeing in imports. If China needed to source 10% of its demand from international markets, total seaborne coal volume would have to jump over 50%. Our initial hypothesis was that China's thermal coal imports were likely to provide a secular tailwind to international thermal coal markets. Our next step was to look at ways to express the trade. We settled on dry bulk freight as the most levered way to take exposure to increasing seaborne coal volume. The early indicators were promising, given that the shipping companies we looked at seemed to be trading at depressed multiples of cash flows, despite a healthy rebound in freight volumes and dry bulk rates since the advent of the global recession in 2008. We expected to see rapidly growing dry bulk demand outstripping growth in supply, which we speculated had dropped off significantly due to the global recession. The picture that came up into focus, however, made it clear that our intuition had been completely wrong. It turned out that the supply pinch we expected to see had actually occurred several years earlier in connection with rising emerging market imports of commodities, such as iron ore. High freight rates had sparked a shipbuilding boom in the three to four years preceding the financial crisis. In 2010, new capsized freighters hitting the water equaled almost 20% of the global installed base. Fleet capacity is on track to increase by a similar amount in 2011. We concluded that even if China had to source 100% of its marginal growth through seaborne freight markets, there was no way demand could come close to absorbing the dry bulk capacity coming online. So, ironically, you were looking at the dry bulk shippers as a potential buy, but once you dug into the fundamentals, you concluded they were actually a sell. Yes, and not only a sell, but our highest conviction short trade in 2011. Did you then go short the dry-bulk shippers? It is hard to see any circumstances in which we would go outright short a stock. Your gain is limited, your loss is unlimited, and your exposure grows as you are wrong. Instead, we bought out-of-the-money puts on some of the dry-bulk ship operators. When rising implied volatilities made those premiums prohibitively expensive, we shifted toward in-the-money puts to reduce the time-value decay. There are five main pillars to Mai's investment strategy. 1. Find mispricings in a theoretically priced world. Mai seeks to identify trade opportunities that arise because prices, particularly for derivatives, are based on one of a number of standard pricing assumptions that may be entirely inappropriate based on the specific circumstances applicable to the given market. When these assumptions are unwarranted, they create mispricings and trading opportunities. Two. Select trades in which the probabilities appear to be significantly skewed to a positive outcome. As a general rule of thumb, Cornwall requires that the estimated gain if the trade succeeds multiplied by the probability of a positive outcome must be at least twice as large as the estimated loss if the trade fails multiplied by the probability of a negative outcome. Of course, these gain and loss amounts and their respective probabilities must be based on subjective estimates. Nonetheless, the key point is that the probability-weighted gain must be lopsided relative to the probability-weighted loss. The rigorous standard for qualifying trades will lead to a concentrated portfolio. Typically, MI will have only 15 to 20 independent risks, consisting of one or more separate trades, at any one time. This concentrated portfolio approach should not be confused with the proverbial put all your eggs in one basket, but watch that basket very closely. The important distinction is that although Mai's portfolio is very concentrated, the asymmetric construction of his trades assures that the downside is always severely constrained if he is wrong. 3. Implement trades asymmetrically. My structures trades so that the downside is severely limited while the upside is open-ended. One common way of achieving this type of return-slash-risk profile is by being a buyer of options. Of course, only at those times when a mispricing is identified. 4. Wait for high-conviction trades. Mai is perfectly content to stay on the sidelines and do absolutely nothing until there is a trade opportunity that meets his guidelines. Having the patience to wait for high-expected value trades greatly enhances the return-slash-risk of individual trades. 5. Use cash to target portfolio risk. Because most of the trades in the portfolio are derivatives, which require much smaller cash outlays than outright positions, my will hold a large cash component in the portfolio, typically 50 to 80 percent. By increasing or decreasing this cash component, my can target his desired portfolio risk level. Prices for derivatives, such as options, are determined by pricing models that embed certain assumptions. These models are used because they generally provide reasonably good approximations, The assumptions these models are based on, however, are sometimes inappropriate for a market given the specific prevailing fundamentals. The acceptance of these assumptions as being universally applicable when, in reality, they are not, leads to trading opportunities. Mai identified five generally accepted assumptions that sometimes are invalid. 1. Prices are normally distributed. Options are price-based on the assumption of a normal distribution, which effectively implies that future prices near the current level are most probable and that probabilities drop steeply for prices further removed from current levels. In some instances, however, large price moves are much more likely than implied by the normal distribution. Consider, for example, Mai's comments regarding Capital One. The odds that the stock would still be near $30 in two years seem vanishingly small. Either the company would be vindicated or it would go under. In such circumstances, options priced in line with option pricing models will be severely mispriced. Specifically, out of the money options will be priced far too cheaply. These mispricings can create profit opportunities. If the probability of a large price move is much greater than normal, as was the case with Capital One, then out of the money options can provide a significant probability of gain while being priced consistent with long-shot probabilities. Another implication of the normal distribution assumption is that it is always equally likely for prices to go up X percent as down X percent. Although this assumption may often be a reasonable approximation, there are times when it is far more likely for a market to go up by a given percentage than down by the same amount or vice versa. A good example of such an asymmetric price outlook was the Korean stock market when Mai implemented his long position, At the time, the market was not only severely undervalued relative to other Asian markets, but prices were so low that many companies had market capitalizations that were less than their net cash balances. That is, the companies were effectively being valued at less than zero. In such circumstances, the odds of a large price advance are significantly greater than the odds of an equivalent price decline. There is an important corollary here. The contention by many academics that the market price is always right is inconsistent with the empirical evidence. There are times when the market price is clearly wrong, and these situations provide major trade opportunities. 2. The forward price is a perfect predictor of the future mean. This assumption implies that options will be priced with probabilities centered at the corresponding forward price. Sometimes, however, when the forward price is well removed from the current price, it may not be reasonable to assume that a price change equal to the difference between the forward and spot price is the most likely market outcome. Frequently, there may be good reason to assume that some price between the forward and spot price is more likely than the forward price. If this is true, out-of-the-money options, puts if the forward price is higher and calls if it is lower, may be underpriced. The Brazilian interest rate my described provided a good example of such an opportunity. 3. Volatility scales with the square root of time. This assumption, which is embedded in option pricing, may be reasonable for shorter time intervals. For longer time periods, however, this volatility assumption may understate potential volatility, particularly if current volatility is low, for two reasons. First, the longer the time period, the more likely volatility will revert to the mean from current low levels. Second, Longer periods allow for more opportunity for trends to result in larger price moves than implied by the volatility assumption. 4. The trend can be ignored in the volatility calculation. Option pricing models gauge the probability of price moves of a given magnitude based on volatility and time. Trend is not a part of the calculation. The implicit assumption is that the direction of daily price changes is random. Consequently, a trending market can result in price moves that would be deemed improbable by the pricing model. If there is a reason to expect a trend, then out-of-the-money options are likely to be underpriced. Mai's Canadian dollar option trade was based on this premise. 5. Current Correlations Are Good Predictors of Future Correlations Some market correlations tend to be fairly consistent, e.g. gold and platinum, tend to be positively correlated over the broad spectrum of time. While other market pairs may exhibit variable correlation patterns, e.g. the Australian dollar and Swiss franc that were part of my worst of basket trade. Correlation-based trades will tend to assume future correlation equal to the correlation in the past look-back period. Such an assumption may often be invalid for markets that have variable correlation patterns. One of the great misconceptions of the investing public is equating risk with volatility, which is wrong-headed on multiple grounds. First, frequently, the most important risks don't show up in the track record and hence are not reflected by volatility. For example, a portfolio of illiquid positions held during a risk-on period may have low volatility, but large risk if market sentiment shifts to risk-off. The other side of the coin is that sometimes volatility can be high because of abrupt large gains but the theoretical risk of the investment is limited. My strategy provides a good example of an investment approach that has high volatility and constrained risk. My's track record shows a lot of volatility because of a predilection to large gains, not a characteristic most investors would associate with risk or consider undesirable. Although the volatility is very high, the risk is tightly controlled because trades are structured to be asymmetric. The maximum possible loss on each trade is well-defined and far smaller than the potential gain. Mai's investment approach demonstrates the principle that high volatility does not necessarily imply high risk. Flexibility is one of the hallmarks of market wizards. Mai routinely changes his view as dictated by the research. His trade in dry bulk shippers provides a perfect example. He started off with the idea that these companies were a buy, but ended up taking the exact opposite exposure when his research indicated that his initial premise had been entirely erroneous. Good traders get out of a position when they realize they have made a mistake. Great traders are capable of taking the opposite position when they realize their original concept was dead wrong. Chapter 8 Michael Platt The Art and Science of Risk Control Michael Platt achieved career clarity at an early age. I have had a very easy life, he says, because I never had to think about what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a trader from when I was 12, and I started when I was 13. Platt continued to successfully trade stocks through high school and university with one major exception. His stock account lost half its value in a single day, the crash of October 19, 1987, This episode was the first and last time Platt experienced a large percentage loss. After graduating from the London School of Economics in 1991, Platt joined JP Morgan, where he had an extremely profitable eight-year career, trading a wide range of fixed-income derivatives. His success at the firm led to repeated promotions, culminating with his appointment as managing director in London, with the responsibility of heading up proprietary relative value trading. Platt left J.P. Morgan in 2000, along with William Reeves, to co-found Bluecrest. The firm has been extremely successful, growing to close to $29 billion in assets under management and nearly 400 staff by early 2012. The majority of assets are in two programs, a discretionary strategy headed by Michael Platt, and a systematic trend-following strategy headed by Lita Braga, who joined the firm in 2001. The discretionary trading strategy has achieved an average annual compounded net return of just under 14%. The hallmark of Bluecrest performance is not its return, but rather its extraordinary risk control. In 11 years of operation, the discretionary strategy's largest peak-to-trough equity drawdown has been under 5%. Keep in mind, this track record includes the 2008 financial meltdown, in which many hedge funds witness single days with larger drawdowns. The return-slash-risk of the discretionary strategy headed by Platt is off the charts with a gain-to-pain ratio of 5.6. The gain-to-pain ratio is a loss-based, as opposed to a volatility-based, return-slash-risk measure. The consistent and extended low-risk numbers achieved by Bluecrest's discretionary strategy are not a matter of chance. Platt is obsessive about risk control. It permeates his own trading and the design of every aspect of the strategy. The discretionary strategy has kept losses remarkably low through a three-tiered process of combining broad diversification, seven teams trading different strategies and sectors, extreme tight reins on the losses of individual traders, and oversight by a seven-person risk management team. Platt is really serious about risk control. I met Platt at the firm's Geneva office. We talked in a conference room that was memorable for its unusual color, orange, When discussing trading strategies, Platt speaks at a speed that is somewhere between a rushed New Yorker and the fast-talking executive in the famous FedEx commercial. When the topic of conversation is a four-legged fixed-income trade, keeping up with Platt can be a challenge. How did you get interested in markets? I have always liked puzzles. When I was ten years old, my dad gave me a Rubik's Cube, and thirty-six hours later, I could do it from any position in under one minute. I always regarded financial markets as the ultimate puzzle, because everyone is trying to solve it, and infinite wealth lies at the end of solving it. When you are solving any puzzle, you have to start off from the perspective, what do I know for sure? Do I have any bedrock to start off my analysis? It's shocking how little you know, for certain, in financial markets." One of the only things I could say with certainty was that markets trend because I can observe trends in any financial market, in any time era. You could go back 150 years in cotton futures, and there are trends everywhere. The same is true for equities, bonds, short-term rates, everything. It seems illogical that markets trend. Markets should discount all information and then be static, waiting for the next piece of information, before changing price level. But that is not what they do. And the reason they trend is because our minds just don't work properly. We make an estimation of the future based on all the knowledge we have of the past at the current moment. We remember the past in bullet point form. We'll never remember this conversation verbatim. We'll remember bullet points. All the things that are happening currently, we have a high level of detail on because they are instantaneous and all around us. It turns out that when you recall the past, you have lots of gaps because you only retain an edited summary of it. You fill in those gaps the same way you fill in a wall with plaster. The material with which you fill in the gaps in your past recollections is called today. So how you feel today, whatever you are thinking today, whatever is going on today is what you're going to use to fill in the gaps in the past. It is well known that people misremember the past. There is a famous experiment in which about 200 people watch a slide sequence of a car going to the end of a street, turning right, and then hitting a pedestrian. Half the group sees slides with a stop sign at the end of the street, and the other half see a similar set of slides with a yield sign. The subjects are then asked some questions about what they saw. Within each group, half the subjects are asked one question that refers to a stop sign, while the other half are asked the same question with a reference to a yield sign. All the participants are then shown two nearly identical slides, and asked to pick the slide they saw. The only difference between the two slides is that one has a stop sign and the other a yield sign. A large majority of the people who were asked a question that contradicted what they saw, a reference to a stop sign when they saw a yield sign, or vice versa, misidentified the slide they actually saw. The point is that once they are presented with contradictory information, the majority of people misremember something that they watched only a few moments ago, because they use the more recent information to fill in what they can't remember exactly, or at least are not 100% sure of. They are filling in the gaps in their bullet-point memory of the past with information from the current moment. If the market is going up today, your forecast is going to be that it will continue going up because it is how you feel at the moment that is the most important thing. Today becomes how you felt in the past because you misremember. So everything is about today. If it is going up today, it will go up tomorrow. In this sense, financial markets become self-referential. I would have a different explanation of why markets trend. I believe markets trend because there is some important underlying change in fundamentals that has not been adequately discounted, or sometimes markets trend because they anticipate such a fundamental change. But any major trend has some fundamental catalyst. Markets may initially trend for fundamental reasons, but prices overshoot by ludicrous amounts. At some point, prices go up today simply because they went up yesterday. Okay, you know that markets trend. What else do you know for certain? You also know that diversification works. That is what the systematic trend-following strategy is built on. Markets, trend, and diversification works. It doesn't have any economic information. But that leaves open two questions. How do you accurately identify trends without being overly subject to whipsaws? And how have you managed to keep risks so constrained? First, the systematic trend-following strategy trades over 150 markets. Second, the systematic team looks at past correlations in weighting those markets. Currently, because of the whole risk-on, risk-off culture that has developed, diversification is quite hard to get. When I first started trading about 20 years ago, U.S. and European bond markets weren't really that correlated. Now, these markets move together tick by tick. So how do you get diversification when you have such extreme correlation? You have problems getting it. Recently, everything works or everything doesn't work. For example, we have had periods where everything worked for the systematic trend-following strategy, and we made $1 billion. It's all really one trade, isn't it? Well, that's exactly my point. How, then, do you control the risk? How do you protect yourself against a market reversal where everything then goes against you at the same time? There are lots of ways the program deals with this problem. But the main method is using a response curve, which means that when a trend gets really overextended, our system will liquidate the position, and when the market reverses, it will reinstate it. That part is not really secret. We share that information with our investors. But how we do it, how we determine when a market is overextended, and how we execute trading out of and back into positions, that is a matter of an insane amount of mathematical research, and of course is proprietary. The systematic team is continually researching the correlation between markets, modeling markets versus other markets, and pursuing virtually every angle of analysis you can think of. The program has literally millions of lines of code. It's the best you can do with a bunch of markets that are reasonably correlated now. The biggest protection we have is liquidating out of overextended trends. If the trend goes further still, too bad. More often than not, it is a good decision. It saves your bacon on the big reversals. The real Achilles' heel in systematic trend-following is if you get whipsaw markets. How is your systematic trend-following strategy avoided getting hit by more significant drawdowns during these types of markets? Our system will tend to keep the position small if the trend is perceived as being weak. Is your systematic trend-following strategy fully defined, or is it changed over time? The strategy is always changing. It is a research war. Lita has built a phenomenal, talented team that is constantly seeking to improve our strategy. Is the implication that if you stay with a static system, eventually it will degrade? Yes, I hear that. Platt names a well-known CTA with a long track record. Original system is now insanely volatile and unprofitable. On a recent plane trip, I read The Complete Turtle Trader by Michael Koval a book about the group of traders originally trained by Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart, using a variation of a simple breakout system, originally developed by Richard Donchian. In the book, Koval details the actual rules of the once-secret system. Now, I'm pretty familiar with breakout systems, and I know from computer testing that they don't work all that well. They make moderate returns with lots of volatility, I, therefore, was quite curious to see what modifications the turtle system made to transform what I knew to be a mediocre system into an effective one. So, as I read the book, I jotted down any rules that were modifications of a basic breakout system. When I looked at these modifications, none of them seemed to be all that significant, and I couldn't understand how they can make such a big difference. At the end of the book, Koval provided an appendix containing the track records for many of the turtle traders. Throughout the book, he had mentioned one of these traders as being the best of the group. I checked the track record for this trader, which went back to the mid-1980s, and I saw lots of huge returns in the earlier years. Then I looked at just the last eight years and mentally estimated that the average annual return during that period was maybe only 2% higher than the T-bill rate, but with substantial volatility. The whole great track record was really pre-late 1990s, and since then, the performance has degraded into mediocrity. I'm sure most investors don't look past the impressive total track record statistics and fail to realize that all the outperformance occurred well in the past and that the more recent period statistics are radically different. We went off on a bit of a tangent. I asked you about how you got interested in the markets, and you told me about your interest in puzzles. But we never talked about how you actually first became involved in markets. My grandmother traded equities. I got involved in stock trading through her. She was a long-term investor and did very well at it. She was a very strong woman. She wasn't interested in baking a cake for me. She was interested in what stock I wanted to buy or sell. I told my grandmother about a trust savings bank whose shares were going to be floated. It's going to be open at a premium, I told her, because they're going to sell it cheap so everyone buys the shares. She said, okay, then let's get involved. She asked me, how much do you want to buy? As much as I can, I told her. She said, okay, I'll lend you the money. She lent me the cash, and I filled out the application forms, which were clearly in her name. We bought 500 pounds or 1,000 pounds of stock, I don't remember the exact amount, at 50 pence, and it opened at 99 pence. How did you get the idea to buy the stock? I read about it. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I got a copy of this magazine called Investor's Chronicle, which had interesting articles about the market, trading options, and lots of company analyses. I read it every week after that. By the time I was 14, I knew every single stat on every single company. At the time, the UK was going through a privatization phase, and I was just buying all the stocks when they went public and flipping them. I must have made 20,000 to 30,000 pounds. This is all while you were still in high school? Yes. When I was at university, I continued trading my own account. I got hammered in the stock market crash of 1987. Tell me about that experience. I woke up that Monday morning and glanced out the window. It looked like there was some sort of hurricane going on in London. Trees had been knocked down. The place had looked like a bomb site. I thought to myself, what a terrible morning. I turned on the radio and that's when I heard the stock market was crashing. How much of your money did you have invested at the time? Oh, all of it. I had no understanding of proper diversification and money management at the time. By the time I got to check on prices, my account was down 50%. My broker was telling me, don't sell, don't sell. So what did you do? I sold it all. I just took the loss. In that particular case, getting out turned out to be the wrong thing to do. I thought to myself, I had 30,000 pounds, and now I have 15,000 pounds. I can still have a good time at university with that amount in the next few years. That was it for how long? Not very long. Soon after, I bought shares in a stock that had gotten crushed, which rebounded a lot. So I made some money back on that. So far, we have only talked about the trend-following system. How much of Bluecrest's trading is systematic? We run approximately $29 billion, updated as of end of 2011, which is about evenly divided between systematic and discretionary approaches. Interestingly, for the prior three calendar years, 2008 to 2010, we almost made identical returns in both systematic and discretionary strategies, but with a better sharp ratio on the human side. Which markets are traded in the discretionary strategy? The big three are fixed income, credit, and emerging markets. What about equities? We don't trade equities except for one small program. Why not? It's too qualitative. I prefer quantitative approaches. Can't equities be quantitative? We do have a small program, which is a systematic program trading single stocks. It is basically an intelligent market maker. It models the price of every stock, using all the other stock prices as the input. It looks for divergence. If, for example, Fidelity decides to liquidate a given stock, their selling will probably push the stock out of line with a basket of stocks. We will buy the stock and sell the basket, and we will do the same thing with other stocks. So it is basically a statistical arbitrage approach. Yes, it is. We have done a phenomenal amount of work on quantitatively selecting single stocks. The implication of that is there have been a lot of dead ends. Yes, there have been. I recall that you did have another equity strategy at one time. What happened to it? Yes, we did. It was a market-neutral strategy for investors who wanted the relative value approach in equities. It made money, but it wasn't top quartile. I want our product